Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode is also brought to you by Follow Me New York City Adventures, a walking tour company dedicated to the idea that a tour can be more than a leisurely stroll around town. It can be an adventure. They take their guests inside the places that shape the city's history and culture, creating immersive programs that leave visitors with a sense that they haven't merely seen New York, they've experienced it. For a limited time, you can take 20% off the price of your adventure when you visit their website, followmenycadventures.com, and enter promo code BOWERY. That's followmenycadventures.com, promo code BOWERY. So what do you say? Are you feeling adventurous? Episode 261 of the Bowery Boys, The Huddled Masses, Emma Lazarus, and the Statue of Liberty. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey, Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We're back together again to give you a show about a poem, but a very, very important poem to American history. The New Colossus, a.k.a. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. A poem written by New York poet Emma Lazarus. Now, Emma's poem was written to help raise funds to erect the Statue of Liberty's pedestal. But it has long come to define nothing less than the American ideal of liberty and openness. Its stirring words remind us that it's the nation's incredible diverse populace that makes us not weaker, but stronger. But the poem, which many of us can recite at least a part of, I think... At least it, a few phrases. A few phrases, is actually imbued with Emma Lazarus's own unique identity as a Jewish female poet in New York in the late 19th century, and a poet actually of some prominence. So today we're going to be hanging out for a while on Liberty Island in order to tell, you know, to retell the famous story of our favorite stone-faced goddess. But we're not just telling her story, as we already have in a previous episode, because we're going to be digging deeper into this poet and also what this poem has come to represent. So before we jump into our stacks of notes here, Tom, <laughs> I think we just need to, like, let's start with just reading the poem itself, because okay. because not everyone may be familiar with the sonnet itself. Right, and we're reading, what, 12 lines? Yes, we're going to read 12 lines here. Okay. 
Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. You know, Tom, I have a little deja vu. I think I actually recited that poem at a school assembly when I was like in fourth grade or something. Oh. <laughs> By heart? Uh, I, I'm not even sure I understood what any of the words meant. I mean, we can arguably say that we today aren't quite clear upon what the meaning of this poem is today. We hope to get to the bottom of that here. And that really is the point of today's show is that, you know, here's the thing. The, the statue wasn't originally intended to celebrate immigrants or the immigrant experience. There was an entirely different meaning behind it. Right. The creators were focused on something else entirely. So today we're going to be talking about where that poem came from and how did it end up meaning what it means to us today. So Tom, we're, we're about to speak about no less than the very meaning of America, the American identity itself. Oh my God. Let me have another <laughs> sip of this Diet Coke. Hold on. But let's embody this, at least, with the central figure, I'm sorry, the central statue of this story, <laughs> Miss Lady Liberty herself. Yes, by means of situating, we are speaking, Greg, about the Statue of Liberty, or her formal name, Liberty Enlightening the World. She is a 151-foot-tall copper statue of a noble-looking robed woman uh, who is raising her arm and her torch to the skies. And she stands, she stands atop an 87-foot-tall pedestal on Liberty Island, formerly Bedloe's Island, in New York Harbor, and is really one of the most important and popular attractions in the nation. So deep in our back catalog, we actually have a whole show on the history of the Statue of Liberty. But uh, will you rerun the highlight reel here and uh, just <laughs> give us the like the main bullet points of its history? Well, sure. And but I should say that the highlights reel may actually contain a few surprises. So don't you know? Don't just fast forward because you think that you know the entire history of the Statue of Liberty. First of all, we should note. Of course, that the Statue of Liberty was a gift from the French. Okay. Now bear with me. The mid-19th century was not an easy time politically in France because in less than a century, France had swung from monarchy to revolution to a republic and then back to monarchy. There had been this ugly commune. Lots of people had been killed or wound up in jail. And meanwhile, intellectuals were fighting amongst themselves about the best way to govern their country. But in the meantime, certain French intellectuals were looking across the Atlantic at the U.S. and they were finding inspiration in how, you know, our relatively stable democracy was shaping up and how it had persevered even in the face of the very dramatic uh, civil war. So by the 1860s and 70s, 
the nation had fought itself and these noble principles of liberty had persevered. The United States is about 90 years old by this time. So it's a, so it's a successful 90-year-old experiment. Right, and that was the other thing. They were looking across and seeing that we were gearing up by the 1860s for something that was going to be happening in the 1870s, namely the centennial, the 100th anniversary of the nation, which was no small feat for this experiment. So back in France, a chief proponent of doing something, of, of offering some kind of gift, you know, to the American people to celebrate this friendship between the two countries was a French statesman named Edward de La Boulay. Le Boulay here was looking across the pond and was rather inspired by what was going on in the United States when, of course, his own country was being governed by a monarchy. That's right, by Napoleon III. So this was kind of a dicey time. I mean, he was a French statesman pushing for the reestablishment of a republic over in France. He was very well connected to other intellectuals and leading artists, including a sculptor and photographer and all-around artiste named Frederick Auguste Bartholdi. By the way, we've given Tom all the French names for this particular show, <laughs> since you say them better. Are there more coming? <laughs> but Bartholdi is commonly thought of as the father of the Statue of Liberty. Right, and he would tell a tale uh, later in his life, which may or may not be true, about how the idea came up in the first place over a dinner party in 1865 at La fabulous, fabulous Maison, where they cooked up this idea to help commemorate the 100th anniversary of the new nation, but also celebrate the friendship between these two countries by building a monument together. But at the same time, they would be celebrating the Republican ideals of democracy that did not exist at that moment in France. And by doing so and by drumming up a lot of publicity, they could perhaps inspire their fellow countrymen back in France uh, to reject a monarchy and return to a republic. So this was their philosophy behind the statue, this idea of an embodiment of Republican government. That's right. And... That's a very important part of today's story. The very purpose, the original purpose of the Statue of Liberty was to be this beacon of not just friendship between these two countries, but also of the power and the benefits of democracy and Republican governance. But why send a statue? Like, why mm. send a big statue? Why not send flowers and a telegram <laughs> or a box of chocolates? Because they make good chocolate in France. But they, they do make good, good chocolate in Paris. They also make great monuments. Yes. Okay, let's keep in mind that we're talking about the French, and they loved monuments. By this point, you know, they've got monuments popping up in Paris. There's The Arc de Triomphe has been around since the 1830s, but also Baron von Haussmann is, like, redoing Paris. So they're all about big monumental changes and statuary. Did these men in particular know how to build a statue of this size or, or know of its specifications and what to do? Well, not Laboulet. He was a statesman. But Bartholdi at this point uh, was really into these sorts of projects. He had a GoFundMe account. Um, <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> of sorts. Patreon.com slash Bartholdi. <laughs> But seriously, no, he had been inspired by extensive travels he had taken in the 1850s where he was photographing monumental structures around Egypt. He loved the pyramids. You know, he fell in love with stories of other great monuments, including Greg, uh, the story of the Colossus of Rhodes. 
one of the seven wonders of the world. That's right. This was a statue of the Greek god Helios, which had been erected in 280 BC on the Greek Isle of Rhodes. 280 BC, Greg, this thing was over 100 feet tall. It was a statue of this god standing outside uh, the port of Rhodes. It would take an earthquake in 226 BC to demolish it. So by the 1870s, though, they are prepared to move forward with this gift to America. Right, because by that point in the early 1870s, Napoleon III had been deposed. There was a new Republican-leaning government in France, so they could speak openly about plans like this and actually get the government behind them. So in 1871, Bartholdi came to uh, the U.S. to drum up interest in his oversized statue project. And he obviously was well-received. People loved this idea. Well, I mean, you know, he did meet with many prominent uh, Americans. He crisscrossed the nation a couple times by rail. People were polite. But he was left with this feeling that he just wouldn't be able to find enough support, especially financial support to build this, even though he did, when sailing into New York Harbor, look over and spot what he thought would be an ideal location, namely Bedloe's Island. It seemed perfectly positioned for his statue, and and it could even serve as a navigational guide. And Bedloe's Island, uh, just to review, is a small little island in New York Harbor that had a military fort upon it. That's right, Fort Wood. Um, And before that, under British rule, it had been home to a pest house. (laughs) We we always include the pest house detail whenever possible. (laughs) Yes. We wrote about this in our book, Adventures in Old (laughs) New York, and had to get the pest house in there. But by this point, after the Civil War, Bedloe's Island was owned by the U.S. federal government. Fort Wood was no longer being used. And Bartholdi was able to meet up with President Ulysses Grant who did uh, sign off on the island being transferred over to the statue's cause. So when did things finally move forward here? Well, Bartholdi and and Laboulet would keep hammering away at the idea back in Paris. But finally, in 1875, Laboulet realized that the time was right because the U.S. was preparing for its 100th birthday and for its centennial exposition, a kind of World's Fair to celebrate the 100th anniversary, in Philadelphia. So what better place to exhibit at least part of the statue and get Americans excited about the project? And these are my favorite pictures of old (laughs) New York or old American uh, pictures because it's her arm. Right. It's the arm and the torch that they actually send over first. That's kind of a an ambassador or like a, you know, right. to make money. Thirty seven feet of the statue was shipped over her, her right arm that's raised with the torch would be sent over to the U.S. and taken on tour first here to the, the World's Fair in Philadelphia and then finally to Madison Square Park, where it would be on permanent display for several years until 1882. Well, I mean, I have to hand it to them. It's a pretty good idea. Oh, (laughs) you nailed it. (laughs) Don't get cuticle with me, Tom. Okay. Anyway, veering into (laughs) bad taste. So but they did another thing. They they sent over the arm, but they also um, came up with a structure here for their plan. They decided to form a group called the Franco-American Union to to raise the funds. The French would be in charge of paying for the statue and the Americans would be in charge of paying for the pedestal. 
And so I guess this arm tour, if you will, um, helped raise a bunch of money for them, right? Uh, well, yeah. The, the 50 cents that it cost to, to climb to the top of the torch uh, did raise some money, but certainly not enough. So the money was somewhat was slow to come. Ironically, they had an easier time raising the money in France. People would even pay to visit Bartholdi's studio uh, on the Rue de Chazelle in the 17th arrondissement in Paris, pretty near the Arc de Triomphe. So Bartholdi's a bit of a publicity genius. Yes, he kept this story in the press, and he was using the new, the relatively new field of photography uh, to his advantage to get those images of this colossal statue before the public. He was trying to keep it in the press in France, but also in the U.S. Remember that this took so long to really come together. So people were reading about this for years and years and years. All kinds of like commercial tie-ins as people speculated about ways to raise the funds for the Statue of Liberty's pedestal, including my favorite, Thomas Edison. I don't know if you ever came across this in your research. But um, upon debuting and and promoting his new phonograph invention in the 1870s, pitched the idea of once the statue was finally erected, installing a phonograph in her mouth to (laughs) speak and whistle at passing ships. Whistle? (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) That wouldn't be creepy at all, I'm sure. Did did somebody just whistle at me? Wait. It couldn't, it couldn't possibly be. <laughs> I should briefly note that in, in 1880, a new engineer did join the team to help out with the project's logistics, a man named Gustav Eiffel, or Eiffel, if you will. And, and Eiffel came up with the idea of using pylons to erect uh, an inner support system in the statue, off of which the copper pieces of the statue could be assembled. And that's pretty much why this rather delicate-looking statue could be so large. Right. And because of this piece-by-piece construction, it allowed Bartholdi to, to construct the entire statue at his studio in Paris and then disassemble it, put it in crates, and ship it over to the U.S. in pieces to be reassembled here on Bedloe's Island. So now by the early 1880s, construction is well underway and Lady Liberty is taking shape in Paris. Meanwhile, back over here in America, they're all just excited and enthused and have raised all the money, right? (laughs) Hardly. That was the only catch. The American committee back here in the U.S. hadn't raised enough money, even with the tourists, you know, and New Yorkers who were climbing to the tip of the arm in Madison Square Park, including poet Emma Lazarus, who lived nearby and visited the, the the statue's arm, it just seemed like the money was too hard to come by. Because don't forget that in the 1870s, there, well, there was a panic of 1873. This didn't really seem like a wise use of money. And, you know, there was also this lingering feeling of why should Americans have to pay for a major portion of a quote-unquote gift that they had never even asked for in the first place? (laughs) Well, we've all been there with house guests, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) So nothing really was happening throughout the 1870s in terms of fundraising. So when did Americans finally get their act together and organize something to start uh, getting up to speed here? Well, the American committee knew that they had to do something. So in 1881, they pushed forward and hired Richard Morris Hunt to design the pedestal. Hunt was the designer of many Fifth Avenue mansions. He had gained great acclaim for designing the Tribune Building, which was one of the, the city's first skyscrapers. 
his pedestal that he designed sports a classical design of columns and pillars and discs uh, that were to represent the U.S. states at the time. It was a massive concrete structure covered in granite from Branford, Connecticut. So they had this statue, but it was in Paris. They had these plans for a pedestal. Now they just needed the money. So starting in 1882, the American Committee held a number of really high-profile fundraisers to raise the money for its construction. And for one of these fundraisers, a prominent New York poet named Emma Lazarus would be asked to write a tribute to this new statue. Now, that's where we take the record and we spin it backwards (laughs) because we've got the statue set up and kind of the reason for being... Of mm-hmm. the poem that Raison we're about. But it's time to talk about the poetess herself, Ms. Emma Lazarus, who was born on July 21st, 1849. Now, if people know Emma Lazarus at all, they know her as a writer of poems, or just this poem, most likely. But even had she not written The New Colossus, she had a very notable life of her own merit, not only as a famed writer of the late 19th century, but as a famed Jewish writer. So, Greg, when we talk about the American Jewish story, when we've explored the topic before, it seems like we focus often on things that happened later in the 19th century, mm-hmm. with Jews arriving from Eastern Europe and passing through the Lower East Side. She was not part of that story. No, nor was she even part of the German Jews who came over starting in the 1840s and 1850s. She can trace her lineage all the way back to the colonial era, to the first Jewish people to ever settle in North America. Her forefathers led the first American Jewish communities in the 18th century. In fact, it was one of her ancestors who received President George Washington at his synagogue, at her ancestor's synagogue in Newport. And it was Washington who later wrote a letter promising safe harbor for the Jewish people in America. Wow, how how relevant. I mean, there are parallels there to this very poem that she would write 100 years later. I mean, isn't that kind of remarkable? Lazarus was part of the Sephardic Jewish community who had been in New York since the Dutch days. Th- this essentially means that they're from the Spanish-Portuguese diaspora mm-hmm. uh, who had settled here in the 17th century. Now, flash forward to Emma, who was born in 1849. Her family by this time was very well established. They were quite wealthy. Her father, Moses Lazarus, had grown quite wealthy due to sugar refinery. Yet another sugar refinery enters the story here. Success can be sweet. (laughs) And especially for young teenage Emma, who was, you know, born certainly into a certain comfort, privately tutored. But I I think the more you read about her, I find her to be a very bold and inquisitive person. And of course, at a very early age, she was an incredibly talented writer. By age 15, she actually began writing poems about the atrocities of the Civil War. And she even wrote one about the capture of John Wilkes Booth. A poem, I believe, that was daring because it was written from his perspective. Yeah, I mean, she was already doing kind of interesting things with her work here. When she was 17, her father published a book of her poems, privately published for the family. But then that got picked up by a major publisher. So by the time she was 18 years old, she was already being reviewed by the New York Times. Good heavens. So she was like (laughs) she was a teenage star. 
Yeah, she, yeah, she was a teen literary star with some renown. I mean, it's so exciting to go through old newspapers from the 1860s and 70s and know that she's young and her name is popping up everywhere. Poems are being published in journals and newspapers all across the land. Like I found one in March 1867 in a Boston newspaper called Spring. That same year in a newspaper in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, she published a poem called The Sea Queen's Toilet. <laughs> The Sea Queen's Toilet? Yeah. Oh, like a 19th century term for like a... a yeah, like where your cosmetics. I'm, I'm going to go yes. do my toilet. Yeah. Yes. Well, she, in, well, when she was 18, she had a very fortuitous meeting with the great Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was 65 years old, great philosopher and poet, who was the leader of the transcendental movement. And and sort of the, the father of American poetry, right? He, he was the man. Yeah, so she actually had this very unique relationship with him, a sort of a mentor, father figure, even kind of playful, you know, 65-year-old, 18-year-old, but, you know... Greg is grimacing. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. It's a great literary relationship, these two, these two people, and from different generations. She used his encouragement over the years to really start publishing in magazines, other journals. Throughout her 20s and into her 30s, her talent really flourished and also began publishing books of prose and poetry into the 1870s. Wow. So so Emma Hira is like building a successful literary career in the mid-19th century as a woman. Um, yeah. Was this common? No, it, it wasn't. I mean, this is... She almost has a life that a woman might have a hundred years later. Yeah. Uh, she's got, she's just very, very talent focused. Uh, she's very determined. She never got married. In fact, neither did her five sisters. Her mother died early and they all lived with the father all together for most of their life. They, Emma began life in a house right off of Union Square and lived for, for her teens. Later in life, as a, as a young woman, lived at 34 East 57th Street, which is interestingly a block east of Trump Tower. Mm. And then in, later in 1883, she, she moved into a home at 18 West 10th Street, which is a brownstone just north of Washington Square and is actually presently preserved. That's right. Still there with a plaque that says Emma Lazarus lived here. But it doesn't say that she also lived there with her five sisters. No, I mean, it was a. It must have been a very lively, crowded home. But... I mean, it sounds like a PBS miniseries. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, you know, a lot of earlier reports of her, earlier histories, uh, depict her as being reclusive. But, I mean, I think that once you start really digging into her story, I think she's got a fabulous life, a very lively life. Many, many close female friendships, BFFs. Uh, she swung into some rather bohemian circles. You know, she's just just steps from her home are many acclaimed literary salons where she would cross paths with a wide variety of authors. In fact, one of her closest friends was a woman named Rose Lathrop, who was the daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Wow. So this is all rather remarkable already. I mean, she's a, an unmarried woman who's building this career in literary circles. And on top of that, she's Jewish. Did, yeah. Did that play any role in all of this? In in her development, in her artistic development? Well, it's it's interesting. 
early on, it actually wasn't that important to her or anything that she wanted to focus on. It was something that many in her social circle, in fact, many in her social Jewish circle, would have preferred keeping quiet. As many of them were focused on assimilation. Yeah. So, but as she got older... She became more focused on her Jewish identity and focused her writing on Jewish heritage, but as an American. And that, I think, is what makes her a true pioneer, a literary pioneer. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to unpack the entirety of the American Jewish identity right now. I don't think that we are (laughs) prepared to do that. Uh, Yeah. Uh, However fascinating, I'm sure it would be. They were what we might call today secular Jews. You know, they weren't, they didn't strictly practice. She did go to synagogue, but she was a product of having to fit into a largely Protestant society in New York. However, she did go to synagogue. And by 1876, Uh, she began writing about being Jewish. In fact, in 1876, her reform congregation, Temple Emmanuel, by that time was located at 43rd and 5th Avenue. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right in the middle of high society. Yeah, isn't that interesting? uh, uh, Well, anyway, her rabbi asked her to translate some medieval Jewish poets. And from there, she got really fascinated in, in the works of European Jewish intellectuals. And that was 1876. Just to pull back to the statue for a second, that's the same year that the arm is on tour in Philadelphia. Yeah, 100 years after the start of the Revolutionary War. But here in the 1870s, she's starting to explore in a literary fashion her Jewish heritage. Was she afraid of running into anti-Semitism? Well, it's interesting because she had experienced anti-Semitism, but it's sort of a, it was not overt anti-Semitism. Mm. You know, it was, as long as she kind of kept it quiet, everyone, you know, w- was accepting of who she was. But already by this time, you had prominent Jewish individuals who are being for instance, prevented from staying in lofty hotels, you know, these sorts of barriers. But by the following decade, by the early 1880s, this sort of anti-Semitism in the United States and the world was getting uglier. It was getting violent. It was getting frightening. And I mean, quite frankly, it begins to start resembling some of the horrible rhetoric that we'll see in the 20th century. What, what had changed? What had changed were the arrival to these shores of refugees. Starting in 1881, thousands of Russian Jews and those coming from Eastern European countries fled their homelands. There was a massive wave of immigration fleeing anti-Jewish pogroms in the Russian Empire. So in the 1880s, for instance, of the Eastern European Jewish populations coming to the United States, in the 1880s, you had about 200,000. By the 1890s, you had 300,000. These are huge immigration numbers in a city that has experienced large waves of immigration already. And most of them are settling in New York City. You say they were fleeing anti-Jewish pogroms. These, These were violent raids on Jewish neighborhoods, brutal raids on the Jewish community. These refugees were, were fleeing this terrible violence. I mean, they had no choice but to flee to other countries and, and in a great many cases, flee to the United States. But I just needed to make something very clear here. 
by the early 1880s. This isn't just like a one gigantic Jewish population that is of a kind, right? You really had two different groups of Jewish people now here in New York. You had the old guard, those like Lazarus's family, those like the German Jewish people who had come just a couple decades before. In many cases, these people had wealth, they were the new middle class, and were often assimilated. And the newer arrivals? Were far poorer from different regions of the world than those Jewish people who had arrived here before. And even to create even more of a divide, many of them often spoke Yiddish. Emma, seeing this massive influx of new Jewish immigrants into the New York City region, decided to focus her writing even more on Jewish causes and worked to help these new arriving populations. Well, how did she get involved? Well, she had a unique position here in New York society. She wrote for these prominent journals, including one called the American Hebrew, which was, you know, pretty much one of the big journals for, you know, creating and crafting the new Jewish identity. But she did have a mountain to climb. She had to convince the older set that it was their responsibility to help support these new huddled masses arriving into New York Harbor. To use a term from her poem. Right. Wink, wink. Well, so in some of her articles that she wrote here in 1881, 1882, she promoted training programs that should be offered for the new arrivals. And then a far more daring idea, a very modern idea, to create a land within the old world where these escaping Jewish people could escape to and find as a new home. Essentially, she was referring to the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Making her once again way ahead of her time. Way ahead of her time, years before the modern notion of Zionism came along in the 1890s. So flash to December 1881. Okay. And a number of these recently arrived Jewish immigrants who had been housed down here at Castle Gardens. Okay. At the tip of Battery Park, which was at the time uh, the processing center for newly arriving immigrants. Yeah, before there was Ellis Island. Well, they were moved. There were so many that they were moved from Castle Garden housing to new housing out in Ward's Island. Now, do you know where Ward's Island is, right? Uh, um, East River, yes, <laughs> of, off of the east side. Uh, we don't often talk about it today because it has been absorbed into Randall's Island. The landfill has now connects the two of them. So you may refer to it more today as just as Randall's Island. But Ward's Island was separate. In 1881, the New York Immigrant Refuge was located here. There were many new structures built out here in Ward's, on Ward's Island that were funded by a prominent Jewish banker named Jacob Schiff. And so the houses are sometimes called the Schiff Refuge. So this group got moved out from Castle Garden for temporary housing out here on Ward's Island? Yeah, but they were there for, you know, for quite a while as, as they tried to figure out what they were going to do, what the city was trying to figure out what to do. It was around this time in the... the following year in early 1882 that Emma Lazarus began coming out to see the conditions here at Ward's Island. What what was she finding? Well, let me read you an article from March 26th, 1882, titled 
Among the Russian Jews, a visit to the refugees on Ward's Island. So this, this article in the New York Times was uncredited. But according to author Esther Shore, who has like the definitive biography on Emma Lazarus, in my opinion, many hints within the article suggest that it was probably written by Emma Lazarus herself. Oh, how did she figure that out? Well, some of the wording sounds very familiar. Let me read an extended excerpt here. Quote, Every American must feel a thrill of pride and gratitude at the thought that his country is the refuge of the oppressed, the home of hope to the whole human race. And however wretched be the material offered to him from the refuge of other nations, he accepts it with generous hospitality. But when he is offered, as in this instance, a rich infusion of intellectual and physical strength, a colony of thrifty, sober, intelligent, and educated workers who ask for nothing but the right to toil, it must be his pleasure, no less than his duty, to give something more than passive encouragement. This is not a matter that concerns the Jews alone. It is rather one phase of the general emigration question, which is vitally important to the whole people. Wow, a sentiment that definitely echoes many of the themes in the New Colossus. Yes, so these were the people on the top of her mind in 1882. Meanwhile... As she was visiting them on Ward's Island, a statue across the ocean in France, the statue had been completed, awaiting only the Americans to get their acts together and fund this pedestal so they could finally ship the statue to New York. Now, as you said, she had visited the arm. She had probably certainly read about the, the trials and tribulations of getting this over in the newspapers. But what she probably did not realize at this time that her cause that she was taking on here would become permanently connected with this large copper lady. And we'll get to the story of the mother of exiles after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. All right, to recap, it's 1882. Right. We have a Statue of Liberty fundraiser. Many of them. And a extremely talented poet mm -hmm. uh, who getting more involved with newly arriving immigrants. Right. So she must have jumped at the chance here to like contribute in some way to the funding of the Statue of Liberty. Not at all. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> in fact, you know, when she was asked to create a poem by one of the the men leading one of these fundraisers, a man named William Maxwell Everts, uh, who had been a he was a former Secretary of State. Everts was organizing an, an event uh, with a rather long-winded name, the Art Loan Fund Exhibition in aid of the Bartoldi Pedestal Fund for the Statue of Liberty. It was an event that would open on November 2nd, 1883, and it would feature works uh, by major writers and poets and other artists. Emma, of course, was, was famous by this point, as you had pointed out, so it made sense for Everts to reach out to her and ask if, you know, she could contribute something to the event because on top of everything else, she was a local. You know, they were looking for New York-based talent to also contribute to the, to the fundraiser. And she declined? Yeah, well, it didn't seem like a good fit to her. You know, she, Emma did not like being forced to write anything. You know, what, her poetry was supposed to come from within her. She didn't want to be told what to write about. Mm -hmm. And plus, she thought it might be kind of hard to say something about an oversized monument that was ostensibly celebrating friendship between two countries and... Something about liberty? I mean... She was not in that mindset. She no. She was not there. No, because I'm like she was at that point getting involved in real charity, trying to really help people out. And meanwhile, the statue is celebrating like the noble values of republicanism. You know, it was just like, ugh, she didn't have time for that. She was, she was busy with her work, but also with her charity work. And like you said, helping out these Jewish refugees out on Ward's Island. So she said no. Right. She, okay. she said no, and Everett's moved on without her. However, there was another member 
of the committee, another female writer in New York named Constance Carey Harrison. Well, she, she nudged her friend a little bit to get involved. She, she actually helped Emma see how writing about the statue might actually help the cause of the refugees who were stuck out on that other island. You know, by focusing on one island, she could actually write about another island. So she kind of just used the opportunity of this poem to write about something else that she wanted to really talk about. Right. So with less than a month before this event was to take place in December, uh, she sat down and wrote her work in November called The New Colossus. And when putting her pen to paper, she was thinking about all of these things. And she was trying to relate them to a statue that she had never actually seen assembled. And she sat down and she wrote. Can we hear the poem again one more time now that we're actually here with pen to paper? <laughs> pen to paper, Emma's sitting at her desk. I just want you to hear a few things in a different light, okay? She opens it, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. And here, Greg, she's talking about Colossus. The Colossus of Rhodes, the old Colossus. Right, the, that ancient Greek statue. She says, Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. The Twin Cities being New York and Brooklyn. That's right. Which would be on either side of New York Harbor. Right, because this was being constructed before they had consolidated. Sorry, Jersey City. She's talking Brooklyn. She is. <laughs> she is. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Really seems like she's talking about the refugees off on Ward's Island. Yeah, I mean, it, this doesn't really resemble any of the sentiment that Bartholdi is talking about. She's really... Not I mean, at the, all. I mean, the fact that she's calling it Mother of Exiles, that's, right. that's nothing that Bertoldi said. Laboulet wasn't, like, throwing about the phrase Mother of Exiles here. N not at all. They were talking about restoring republicanism. So a month later, in December of 1883, this grand event was held at, at New York's Academy of Design. And all kinds of works of art were seen and appreciated that night uh, by the more than 1,500 people who attended. According to the Museum of the City of New York, quote, the exhibition and auction featured fine art, lace, stained glass, armor, and antique furniture, as well as literary manuscripts. And these manuscripts, with works written by many other notable authors as well, were auctioned off and raised about $1,500 for the cause. Oh. <laughs> Was her sonnet... Was it read uh, at this gala? Was it, or was it just something that she was written down? You seem rather unimpressed on multiple <laughs> fronts here. But first, yes, her her sonnet was read aloud at the beginning of the event. I think there was a song that was sung, and then hers was the first to be read aloud. The poet James Russell Lowell was there, a friend of Emma's, of course. He wrote to her shortly after the event with praise, uh, praise that foreshadowed, I think, her accomplishment. He wrote, quote. 
I like your sonnet about the statue much better than I like the statue itself. Your sonnet gives its subject a raison d'etre, which it wanted, before quite as much as it wants a pedestal. You have set it on a noble one, saying admirably just the right word to be said, an achievement more arduous than that of the sculptor. So Lowell is identifying that Emma Lazarus is actually reinventing the statue kind of in her own image, or at least her own intentions. And in that respect, he saw it as a great success. Emma, by the way, was not at the event that night. She sometimes was a bit shy. If I may go mm-hmm. back to that $1,500, now was that, oh, right, yeah. was that, it doesn't seem like a, a lot of money for a fundraiser. Was that what they intended? Um, no, and see that you're you're hitting upon the the problem. They were well connected, you know, to rich families. They brought out you know New York Society for the event, but they only raised fifteen hundred dollars. It was not nearly enough money to erect Hunt's massive pedestal. It would take others who would bring the general public on board with their support in order to fund this, and that would be thanks to the popular press. The very press, Greg, that mocked the Americans' inability to finance this project because it, it became a sort of laughingstock in, in the press. They were printing parodies of, about the statue, such as Life magazine in January 1884, which depicted the statue as, as old and haggard, you know, still waiting for her pedestal to show up. <laughs> and the very next year, in April of 85, Puck magazine lampooned the fun drive by by showing the statue as a sellout to advertisers. You know, she's plastered with ads and she's holding a bottle of champagne. (laughs) Anything, you know, to bring in some cash. But most notable of all of the publishers who got in on this was the, the man with the loudest megaphone, Joseph Pulitzer, who was the publisher of The New York World, which was one of the nation's most uh, widely read newspapers. He took on the funding as a cause celeb, and he shamed leaders to get involved and pled with readers to send in their donations. He wrote in 1885, money must be found at all costs. And between March and August of 1885, he pledged that he would print the name of every donor who sent money through his office for the pedestal cause, no matter how small. He printed the names of donors who gave from five cents up to $250. And he raised, in those months, $100,000. And so could you say that Pulitzer is really responsible for getting this darn thing completed? Yes. Okay. It meant the world to him. (laughs) So when did it finally open? When was it finally dedicated? Well, dedication day was Thursday, October 28th, 1886. Finally, the day of unveiling had come, and everywhere French and American flags were hanging in New York City from balconies, high over streets, cannons were positioned in the harbor, and about a million New Yorkers were putting on their celebratory best and pushing out into the streets in the morning to be a part of history. Bartoldi, of course, was, was there. He was sitting next to President Grover Cleveland. And after watching the troops march down Fifth Avenue and Broadway, they sailed out to Bedloe's Island where the statue was draped in an enormous French flag. And Emma was there, certainly. No, she she no. was central, wasn't she? Uh, no, Emma was not there. There were, in fact, no women on Bedloe's Island 
for the unveiling or no American women. There were some women who had been invited by the French, but not part of the American party. And at the right moment, Bartoli pulled the rope and down came the flag for the grand liberty reveal. Uh, that must have been spectacular. It probably was, although much of the focus uh, in the next day's papers centered around one unfortunate reality of holding such an event in late October, and that would be unpredictable weather. Oh. From the next day's New York Sun, Liberty unveiled. America accepts the gift of the French people, a city afloat, hidden fog. Oh, so um, not the grand moment of New York City history that perhaps they had uh, they had preferred. Well, it was still a grand moment of U.S. history, um, although interestingly, it was not a moment that people took to to speak about Lady Liberty representing, you know, New York and the U.S. being welcome to new arrivals. Those words, those sentiments were never proclaimed here on Dedication Day. Meanwhile, where is Emma? Well, Emma had suffered uh, from severe depression after her father had passed away in March of 1885, so the year before. And so to recover, Emma had sailed off to Europe. She had, she had traveled there before. as She was now revisiting some of the places that had inspired her uh, before to perhaps find a new project, something else to write about. Unfortunately, as she was traveling, she got sicker and sicker. She thought that it was simply depression, that she was down in the dumps, and that if she just pushed herself physically harder to keep visiting more places, heading off for Amsterdam, heading off for Paris, that she would overcome this depression. But actually, that took an even greater physical toll on her body, and she only grew more frail and sicker. She was, in fact, suffering from Hodgkin's disease, a form of, a form of cancer. One of her sisters insisted that she return home, which she did, arriving in New York Harbor on July 31st, 1887. And her arrival at night meant that she didn't even have a chance to see the Statue of Liberty uh, from her ship as she passed through the harbor. A few months later, Emma Lazarus died on November 19th, 1887. She was buried at Beth Olam Cemetery in Brooklyn. Now, Greg, from the next day's New York Times, her obituary reads, Death of an American poet of uncommon talent. After a long and very painful illness, there died yesterday a young writer of New York. Emma Lazarus was the daughter of the late Moses Lazarus, a sugar refiner, belonging to one of the best known and oldest Hebrew families of the city. And it goes on to tell of her work as a poet, of her awakening to her Jewish identity, um, how she started writing poems that were more focused on Jewish themes. Well, it sounds like a very respectful eulogy to her career. Mm -hmm. uh, what did they say about the new Colossus? Her work with the Statue of Liberty, her tribute to the Statue of Liberty, was not even mentioned in her obituary. I would say that the poem itself was completely forgotten. And this was only a year after the statue had been unveiled. Yeah. But of course, Emma Lazarus was not forgotten to her many close friends. And one in particular who affects this story, a woman named Georgina Schuyler. Schuyler? Of the Schuylers? Oh, yes. She is a descendant of Alexander Hamilton and Eliza Schuyler and was a close friend of Emma Lazarus. By 1901, 
she doggedly promoted the idea of a memorial to Emma Lazarus. It would take a couple years, but on May 5th, 1903, that is almost 115 years ago to this very moment as we sit here, hmm. a bronze tablet was installed at the entrance of the pedestal, emblazoned with the words from her poem, The New Colossus. Wow. Well, that is quite a tribute, but how does one actually just get something installed <laughs> on the pedestal of the Statue well, of Liberty? Well, like I said, she was doggedly, she was determined uh, to get it done. She also had some, let's just say, some family connections, <laughs> surely, mm -hmm. uh, to help get this poem permanently affixed there. But because of this new bronze plaque, it brought in renewed interest to this 20-year-old poem. And then, more astonishingly, almost energized the statue with the poem's own meaning. From the Des Moines Register in May of 1903, just the, the month that it was installed, quote, the poem is not only beautiful sentiment adequately expressed, but it voices the Americanism of a century that has passed. And reading it, it is worthwhile to ask, will it voice the Americanism of the century that is to come? As the years went by, the poem became personified within the image of the Statue of Liberty, just as the statue itself was developing into a symbol of American values. So in essence, the poem over the decades became the statue's voice. It sure beats a phonograph. <laughs> An Edison whistling phonograph. Well, that's a really nice story, although it does seem like an awful lot of power to bestow upon just a plaque. Sure, sure. Was there something else going on here that helped cement the reputation of this poem? Well, let me just fast forward here to like the 1910s. The Statue of Liberty by this time has been up for 25 years mm -hmm. almost. Millions and millions and millions of immigrants had sailed into New York Harbor here and passed the Statue of Liberty, of course, getting even closer to it as Ellis Island became the processing center. Oh, right next to it. Right next to it, right? So then on top of this, by the 1910s, specifically 1917, you then had thousands and thousands of servicemen and women leaving the harbor, passing by the Statue of Liberty on their way to war in Europe. Mm. On top of that, the statue's image is branded onto Liberty Bonds, decorating all sorts of wartime propaganda. By the end of the war, by 1920, the statue becomes the second most vital symbol of America itself, second only, of course, to the flag, which, by the way, you know, keeps changing because <laughs> you're adding stars to it with uh -huh. new states. The statue itself doesn't change. Well, hold on. I will take issue with that because the statue has indeed changed, at least in color. That's true because it, she's yeah. oxidized. <laughs> it, it goes from uh, copper right. to green. Right. I guess we should have mentioned that that when Bartholdi pulled the the cord and the, the the French flag fell off of her, what people were looking at was mm -hmm. a copper statue. She wasn't green. <laughs> no, she no, would take no, no. Decades that's true. to turn that color. But you know, the poem would begin to have almost the sanctity of law by this time, especially paired with another new concept of American life. You now have a very long tradition of immigrants coming through New York Harbor mm -hmm. and becoming Americans. America is a nation of immigrants. America is a melting pot. 
which is actually the title of a 1908 play about Russian Jewish immigrants who are planning to move to the United States for a better life. Which sounds like something Emma Lazarus could have written herself. Yeah. But of course, into the 20th century, the Golden Doors would not be open for everyone and forever. No, there were brand new immigration quotas that were initiated in the 1920s, which began limiting immigration into the country. Even by the 1930s, a great many European Jews in particular began seeking another place to escape the rising threat of Nazi power. In 1939, in the wake of the Kristallnacht attacks in Nazi Germany, a bill was introduced in the U.S. Senate which would bring 20,000 Jewish children refugees into the United States. Did the bill pass? No, unfortunately it was blocked. It was defeated in the Senate, boosted by virulent anti-Semitic sentiment. Now, in 1942, after the attack on Pearl Harbor and after the U.S. entry into war, Americans began putting people of Japanese descent into internment camps. And I mean, let's not forget. I'm sorry, I just jumped over something kind of big here. Let's not forget that the promise of the poem is actually kind of marred from the very beginning because the Chinese Exclusion Act had already been in place. Right. So since the 1880s. Yeah, 1882 and would only be repealed in 1943. The new Colossus, in many ways, to be cynical, is sort of a false promise because it offers a golden door where sometimes we offer instead a golden wall. For many, the words of Emma Lazarus were seen as quaint and naive at best and then dangerous and foolhardy at worst. I mean, this idea, give me your tired, your poor, was this an ideal or was it a fantasy? In 1958, the aspiring politician and future president, John F. Kennedy, wrote a book called The Nation of Immigrants. Quote, the famous words of Emma Lazarus on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty read, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. Until 1921, this was an accurate picture of our society. Under present law, it would be appropriate to add, quote, as long as they come from Northern Europe, are not too tired or too poor or slightly ill, never stole a loaf of bread, never joined any questionable organization, and can document their activities from the past two years. So that's, Ken that's John F. Kennedy at his most cynical. Yeah. But he's offering a critique on the present state of immigration. But it's interesting that he's still going back to the words of Emma Lazarus. Again, I feel like the poem itself, here by the 1950s, is being looked at as an unofficial written law of the United States. And so everyone kind of approaches it quite differently. Almost oh, yeah. like it's a part of the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. But stepping aside for a second from this poem, mm -hmm. meanwhile, this plaque is attached to the statue itself, which has become as well, uh, you know, this great symbol of America and is, by the way, perhaps the, the nation's biggest tourist attraction. Oh, yeah. Attracting millions <laughs> of tourists every year. By the 1950s, millions and millions of people are coming to visit Lady Liberty. In 1956, Bedloe's Island is officially renamed Liberty Island. But by 1965, it's passed over to the National Park Service for operation. 
But by this time, she's getting kind of run down. Oh, yeah. I mean, standing in a harbor for decades and decades. With your arm in the air. (laughs) With your arm. She's getting tired and she's looking tired. The statue goes through a massive restoration in the mid-1980s in time for her 100th birthday in 1986. I remember that. Do you do you remember the the fireworks and the big celebration? Yeah, I mean, broadcast on live TV. I mean, I think for once it was like it was a positive depiction of New York City (laughs) back in the eighties. (laughs) Well, on September eleventh, two thousand one, this statue and what it means it takes on a new dimension. The Statue of Liberty is a symbol now of endurance and of survival and of the strength of New Yorkers following the attack. Although the statue itself was closed from September 11, 2001 until the summer of 2004. And through this whole time, Emma's words are still affixed to the statue, um, although maybe the location has changed a bit. But those words and the sonnet seem even more relevant today. Well, more relevant, more divisive, perhaps. You know, there has been in recent years strong pushback from those, you know, who see this more open immigration Mm -hmm. that the United States once had, they see that as a risk to national security. Others, of course, believe that the words were never really true to begin with, and that it's all sheerly aspirational, and that it never, ever reflected reality. From a newspaper columnist in Tucson, Arizona, in 2002, quote, Give me your tired, your poor. Well, that's a great line by a fine poet. But while the French made Lady Liberty hold the golden torch promising a new beginning for immigrants, Lazarus's idea is hogwash. Do I need to write to this guy in Tucson and explain that the French didn't have that in mind? <laughs> okay. It's been many. I'm sure he didn't dig that deeply when he wrote this, the column. But now speaking to the Haitian refugee crisis from a little over a decade ago, a letter from a Fort Lauderdale newspaper said, quote, The new Colossus might as well be rewritten with the following exclusions. Give me your tired, your poor, except Haitians. Your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, except Haitians. Mm. And on and on. Emma Lazarus must be turning in her grave. Which, of course, Greg, brings us to today. Today, 2018. When the doors are just open wide. Yeah. We're living today... In an age where these words of Emma Lazarus are even considered insightful language, you know, America right now is again evaluating who can become American and what opportunities this country can offer. We are repeating history again, many of the same arguments. It's just a different day on the calendar. Instead, Tom, I'm going to leave it here and I want us to reflect on something that you and I did this morning. Greg and I this morning had the great honor and a thrill uh, to visit the American Jewish Historical Society on West 16th Street, where we met up with Annie Polland, who is the executive director of the American Jewish Historical Society. She took us back through some secretive corridors up one or two elevators. We got kind of turned around. We put on some white gloves, opened up a filing cabinet, and took out Believe it or not, Emma Lazarus' very manuscript. A handwritten journal in her own handwriting written right before she died. And it was sort of a collection of her greatest hits. She wanted to kind of put them in one place. 
on that front page, when you opened it up, the very first poem, modestly, very delicately written there in her own handwriting, was the new Colossus. It's interesting that she put that front and center, because in a way, she had, in her day at least, many more successful poems that had, that had run in various magazines and journals, but she realized, she sensed that it had such power that she actually put it there first, despite being something that she didn't want to write in the first place. We asked Annie if she would read it aloud for us. Uh, here it is. Annie reading directly from Emma's manuscript. The New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates that stand, a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name mother of exile. From the beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. 1883, written in aid of Bartholdi Pedestal Fund. So we want to thank Annie Polland for showing us around the American Jewish Historical Society. We strongly encourage people to swing by. You can enter in. There's even a display that's open to the public that includes a reproduction of this manuscript that you can see for free. Tom and I also headed out to the Statue of Liberty the other day and actually saw the plaque. No, it's no longer at the inside of the pedestal. It's no. part of the museum, which is a f extraordinary, uh, succinct museum about the history of the Statue of Liberty. Right. This is not the Ellis Island Museum, although that is included in the ticket price. This is the museum that is inside the pedestal underneath the statue. And it's a great, you know, sort of like tour de force of the history that includes many of the things that we talked about in today's show. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for some images of Ms. Lazarus, of some pictures from our various voyages, and of course, a great many historical images of the Statue of Liberty. I think you're even going to include a photo of us from this morning with Emma's manuscript. With white gloves. With white gloves. We'd like to thank our supporters who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. Because of your small monthly contributions, Greg and I are able to produce so many more episodes of The Bowery Boys. We're able to just focus our work on producing the best possible show that we can. We can only do it because of your support. We have lots of extra little audio downloads for you at Patreon, and we have a patron-only podcast feed where you can get all those things. Head over to patreon.com slash boys to learn more about that. And finally, we wanted to alert you to an upcoming event that we are involved with. Save the date of Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018. Uh, the location, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Oh. Tom and I are going to help the Cathedral celebrate a very important birthday. And we would love to have you join us in the festivities. So save the date and stay tuned for more details in the next show. And we'll also have them up on the blog in the next week or two as well. But join us for that because that is going to be extraordinary. A great night, May 23rd. 
block it on your calendar. We want to party together at the Cathedral <laughs> of St. John the Divine. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.